Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, and welcome to the first ever St. Peter's Fireside Online. Hopefully you're watching this in a community, or maybe around breakfast or dinner with some friends. And I want to thank you for taking the time to continue to journey with us, even though we are scattered throughout the city. And honestly, I love to see the church unmarried to buildings, yet continue to exist regardless of its place. Maybe even especially during times of chaos like this. But we have so much content to dive through, so let's jump right in. It was 1995. I was five years old, and it was Christmas at 32 Kilburnie Court. My neighbors, Jim and Marilyn Giles, had come over, and there was a present for me under the Christmas tree. My mom finally said, Phil, you can go open it, and I picked up this large box. It was crisply, crisply wrapped, because that's what Marilyn always did, and I ravenously ripped open the paper. And there, sitting before me, was a big yellow Tonka truck. And I mean one of those high-end Tonka trucks with the kind of yellow paint that's exclusively saved for high-end construction vehicles. It had a tiny little crank on the side that you could lift it up to pour out all the contents of its dump truck. And I stared at it for a moment and I said, I hate trucks. And I rolled it away. Another number of Christmases later, I was 16, it was around 2017, and I had asked for Roots sweatpants. Roots salt and pepper gray sweatpants. Size small with the cuffs on the bottom. Christmas morning rolled around. My mom gave me the present and there sitting before me was American Eagle heathered gray size medium sweatpants without the cuffs. And I looked at my mom and I was like, Mom, this is not what I asked for. I asked for salt and pepper gray Roots sweatpants with the cuffs on the bottom. And we ended up getting in this big fight about whether or not I should have got the present I wanted. Or one more. My now wife, then girlfriend Deandra, and I had been dating for about a year and a half. It was my birthday, and it was the second birthday that we'd shared together. And the first one, she blew me away. She bought me a Minolta SRT100 film camera. But this year, my present came in a long poster tube. I popped off the top, unfurled it, and there, sitting before me, was a map. And I looked at Deandra, and I said, why did you get me a map? Now, I offer you these three stories about myself so that you know something very important about me. I'm terrible at receiving gifts. And it's a constant joke among my friends and family. Every Christmas or birthday, they give me presents with a smirk on their faces, knowing that I'll have some sort of strange reaction. They derive a bit of a sick pleasure from my inability to receive their gifts well. And though it may seem harmless, I believe it does point to a more pervasive issue in me. I often believe I'm owed certain things. I believe I'm entitled to certain gifts, and instead of being thankful for the love and kindness that another person has given me, I get angry and frustrated that it's not exactly how I wanted it. So it's been very convicting exploring this series on Ecclesiastes, where we've been saying repeatedly, life is a gift to be received. As a community, we've been exploring this ancient book of Hebraic wisdom. It's a book buried in the Old Testament, and it looks to deal with many of the harsh realities of life. The main thing being, you'll die. 
One day, all of us will die. Our names will be erased from history. Everything under the sun is fleeting, fading, and passing. The clock is running out, and at the end, you'll be forgotten. All of our pursuits will be left behind. It's a book that explores what drives us, our fear of death, our greed and selfish natures, our inability to love well. But throughout this book of meaninglessness, of vanity, of fleeting and fading, it is promised that life is a gift to be received. We are not meant to grab at life, to try to hold on to it with everything we have, but to receive it with open hands. And each week we've repeated the mantra, life is a gift to be received. In the middle of the struggle of life, the challenging and fleeting nature of life, we are reminded again and again, receive it as a gift. And so you can imagine my struggle during this series. I'm bad at receiving gifts, yet life is a gift to be received. And my assumption is that for many of us, this struggle is the same. Yes, we understand that life is a gift, but life often becomes dull, tedious, and monotonous. And this passage that we're in today doesn't necessarily make it any easier. In fact, it heightens the conviction. It paints the great tragedy of not receiving life well. Yet I believe it offers us an invitation. So today I want to join in on the chorus of voices that have beckoned us in this direction to receive life as a gift. And I want to talk about an ancient practice that I am trying to do to better receive the good parts and the difficult parts of life. So this text that we're in, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 6, 9, is a very odd text, you could say. So I want to talk about the structure of the passage first. First, this author, the preacher as we call him, gives an observation around our systemic greed. He gives us three personal proverbs around wealth, and then he paints the tragedy of the pursuit of wealth. And then in the middle, he gives his thesis. It is good to receive life well, but then he kind of works backwards. He counters his own thesis. He points out another great tragedy of not being able to receive God's gifts well, and he ends it with a little bit of wisdom. So let's first start with the observation, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 to 9. It says this, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. I mean, what a way to start a passage, right? It's, it's shocking. If you see oppression and injustice, you would think that a religious text would say, rise up, show that injustice should be fought against, fight on behalf of the poor. But here the preacher simply says, don't be amazed, don't be surprised. This is commonplace. And a number of commentators mentioned the difficulty in translating this passage, but they said the best way to understand it is this. When the preacher says that a high official watches over another, what they are saying is that high and mighty look out for each other so that the poor have no chance. A good king would be committed to the fields, but is most often not the case. This introduction is about systemic greed. The kind of greed that's so pervasive, it feeds off the poor and the oppressed. 
and we see this all the time. A couple of weeks ago, Alistair spoke about how life is full of injustice, how we fail at being good neighbors, but this time the preacher instead equates injustice to our greed. He briefly looks at greed in a systemic way. And though we could rally against the machine, you could say, he instead pulls it to us, to the individual person. So he offers these three proverbs for us to understand our own greed. He says this, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Three proverbs about our greed. First, no matter how much you make, no matter how much wealth you get, you'll always want more. I came across this quote from John D. Rockefeller, who at the height of his wealth, when his total wealth was worth 1% of the entire U.S. economy, said, how much money is enough? Just a little more. The second proverb paints this picture that the man is growing in his wealth, yet people are feeding on him. The tax man always wants a bigger cut. Buy a house, you'll need to always cut the lawn. Have kids and they just keep eating. And the third, wealth doesn't give the satisfaction it promises. Instead, it increases our anxiety and worry. Our full stomachs literally stop us from sleeping. We think that wealth and our incomes will give us rest, that it will give us safety and security, but instead it permits none. And these quick proverbs, they're truths about how we as individuals chase after wealth, but it will never give us what we want, and it fuels systemic greed. So then he gives this promise, this understanding about the trick of death. He goes on and says this, As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and anger. Essentially, the preacher is saying this. All of our pursuits, all of our strivings, all the money in our savings accounts, all the checked boxes on our bucket lists, all this chasing after wealth and power, it's just chasing after the wind. There'll be nothing left in our hands at the end. We can't take anything with us beyond the grave. But we still say to ourselves, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. What really caught me here was that last line, eating alone with much vexation and anger. See, I work in the restaurant industry, and so much of the time I find myself in the break room just eating as quickly as I can to get back on the floor alone in darkness, vexation, and anger. I'm not enjoying the good parts, the delicious parts of life, but instead just trying to get through the day. The author lifts his head above water. He says this, Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. It is good to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
everyone also to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied in his heart. Here, the author gives us a moment and a brief glimpse of joy and how to experience. It's good for a person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in his work. And we've seen the author do this again and again and again. He paints the difficult challenges of life. He complains about the way life is, but then he beckons us to receive life as a gift, to do the hard work of seeking enjoyment in the midst of our struggle. And one of the things I find so important in in that little verse is he reminds us that wealth and possessions and power are good. They are good gifts from God. They bring us great joy. And I find this so important because in reading the book of Ecclesiastes, we might think that the preacher is rallying against the rich, rallying against those who have wealth and possessions. And if that were true, we who are in the West, who have abundance, would be in great danger. But instead, what he says is, no, these things are gifts from God. I like the way Derek Kidner puts it. He says this, At first sight, this passage may seem like a praise of simplicity or moderation. But in fact, the key word is God. The secret of life held out to us is an openness to him. A readiness to take what comes as heaven sent, whether toil or wealth or both. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in the Screwtape Letters. The book is written from the perspective of two demons trying to pull a man away from God. The elder demon writes to the younger demon and says this, Never forget that when we are dealing with pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. It is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. God is a hedonist at heart. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. Nothing is naturally on our side. The preacher highlights that these things, wealth, possessions, power, are good. They're gifts to be enjoyed. But when they become all that we chase after, that's where the problems come. And most of the passages that we've read kind of stop there. It's good to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in life to receive life as a gift. Yes, it's fleeting. Yes, life is difficult, but that's okay. And I wish I could end the passage there because it's so much easier, but the author then pulls the rug out from under us and he says one more thing. There is an evil I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the ability to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, a grievous evil. And here's the real drive from this text. So many of us receive gifts from God, but don't have the ability to enjoy them. The words lies heavy on mankind mean it happens all the time, often everywhere throughout time and place. I'm sure we've all met those crotchety people, right? They're wealthy, they have everything, but they're miserable. There's still more they want. They look past what they have at someone else, and they're angry about it. 
but the author is driving at us. So much of the time, we seem to have the inability to receive God's gifts well. And the free willist in me chafes at those words. Does the preacher really believe that God is giving people gifts, but tricking them and not allowing them to enjoy them? But I don't think that's what he's trying to do. He's writing from the way he sees things. There are so many people in life that can't enjoy God's gifts. And the author puts before us two paths. You can be closed and angry or open and thankful. And then he goes on and paints the tragedy to be closed and angry. He says this, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest. Even though he shall have lived a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Here is probably the most difficult part in the passage. A stillborn child is better off than he Previously, the preacher said it would have been better to have never been born, but now he throws these angering, frustrating, triggering words at us. He's being so over the top, so hyperbolic, trying to grab onto our attention. Don't you see the tragedy of life not received well? To me, this is not an angry man poking at our chest, but someone pleading don't you see how good life is? Don't miss the opportunity before you. This passage is about how our, how our individual greed blinds us from receiving life well and the tragedy that lies before us in not doing that. And as I said at the beginning, I'm bad at receiving gifts, terrible at receiving life well. Trying to receive life as a gift every day can seem impossible. And I assume that for many of us, we feel this way. There are times, yes, when life is beautiful and easy to enjoy. But at its best, life becomes monotonous, dull, repetitious, and tedious. It sometimes feels like a never-ending struggle to just pay the bills, to get ahead. We tell ourselves, if I can just have blank, then I'll be happy. Get the promotion, the girl, the dog, the car, the bike, the apartment, the house, the vacation. But once we get there, there's quickly something else. The new iPhone will be released. A different partner would be more exciting. An apartment in a better part of town or more square feet in the apartment. The next vacation or the one after that. And then there's the moments where I feel for a moment that I've received life's gifts well. But then I look at the person beside me. Have you ever gone to a restaurant, ordered something you're super excited about, and then you see what somebody else got? Or I've got this friend, and she told me about this time that she bought this new road bike. Super tricked out, super lightweight, and she was so excited to tell her coworkers. She biked very quickly to work, got in, and was about to tell all of her colleagues. But then one of her co-workers said, I just bought a house. And immediately, instead of being filled with the joy of life, the awesomeness of her new bike, she compared her to somebody else. I love the way the preacher puts it. He says, All of the toil is for man's mouth, 
yet his appetite is never satisfied. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering appetite. This is also vanity, a striving after the wind. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, the preacher talked about how eternity is in our souls. And this is a beautiful thing, but to me it's also laced with a great danger. We have eternity in our hearts, and could it be that it means we'll never be satisfied under the sun? That our desires are bigger than our bodies? That our appetites are bigger than us and always wandering? So what can we do to receive life well, to avoid this tragedy of a life not received well? For this, I want to, of course, look at Jesus. As Alistair said in the first week, Jesus is the one surprising thing. He comes from the outside. He comes under the sun. In the midst of our toil and struggle, he feels the fleeting nature of life. And how does Jesus receive life as a gift? I heard many times growing up that I have a God-shaped hole in my heart and that only Jesus can fill it, but I don't think this is what Jesus is promising to do Jesus does not come to make us whole. Eventually, maybe. After the resurrection, yes. But right now, Jesus enters under the sun with us. And everything under the sun is fleeting. He experiences the lack alongside of us. He teaches us ways to live inside of it. And he saves us from the need to chase after these things. He shows us a different path. And one of the biggest ways that he does this is through prayer. Throughout the Gospels, we constantly see Jesus pray. 23 times in total, it mentions him praying. He prays for the people around us. He prays when he gives thanks for fish and loaves, for bread and wine, for the sick and poor. He gives thanks for his daily bread. He prays in the morning and at night. Prayer is a constant companion for him. Or I look at Paul in the book of Philippians when he writes, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I believe that one of the secrets or the secret that Paul is referencing is an acknowledgement of God's goodness through prayer. At St. Peter's, one of our core values is a default to prayer. And we do this for so many reasons, but I believe one of them is to cultivate in us a thanksgiving, a joy in receiving God's gifts well. And I know it could be frustrating to hear a sermon like this, to fill us with even more guilt. Yeah, I get it. I don't pray enough. I mean, for me, I forget constantly. As I said at the beginning, I don't receive gifts well. But I want to put the wisdom of the preacher into practice. I do want to receive God's gifts well, and I believe that regular intentional prayer cultivates a posture of receiving. To give thanks each time I'm going to eat. I'm trying to look at meals, even the most simple meals, as a gift, and have God teach me a better posture of receiving. Instead of saying I deserve this, or I paid for this, or to approach it completely unthinking, to give thanks, to give thanks for the sun and the rain that grew the crops, for the farmers that tilled the field and raised the cattle, for the food distribution companies that brought that from the farm to the grocery store, for the clerks that answer my questions, to the power company that heats the elements in my oven and keeps my fridge cold. The list goes on and on. 
I could receive all of God's good gifts without thinking, but instead I'm trying to look down at my plate and receive every meal as a miracle, a gift and an opportunity to open my hands. But why something so small? Why start small with prayer? In his book, The Power of Habit, the journalist Charles Duhigg talks about how to make large changes in one's life. We must start small. Many of us try to make huge, grand changes, as I'm sure many of us have experienced during Lent, but Duhigg is insistent that it is small changes that have the biggest ripple effect. He calls these things keystone habits, and he says, keystone habits are small changes or habits that people introduce into their routines that unintentionally carry over to other aspects of their life. And to me, intentional prayer, especially before meals, is a keystone habit. It trains me to receive the most simple things in life as a gift. I could eat angrily, self-centered, and on my own without a thought in the world. I could look all around and compare to other people at the great things they have. Or I could try to curb my appetite. I could instead try to look joyfully at what's on my plate and to receive it with thanksgiving. I could say that I don't receive gifts well, or I could look down at my plate and slowly over time have God reshape my heart to receive all good things well, whether wealth or toil. And I'm trying to follow the path of Jesus, to not have a wandering appetite, but to give thanks for what's in front of me. I could say I want just a little more, just a little more, just a little more, or I could pray to God, thank you for what you have given me, for this daily bread. So may you open your hands to God's good gifts. And may you be shaped to be the kind of people that receive all gifts with gladness and thanksgiving, knowing that all things, the sun and the rain, fish and loaves, bread and wine, are all gifts from God. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it passing, fading, and fleeting? Of course it is. But trying to grab on harder will only harden your heart. And not receiving God's gifts is a tragedy. Jesus is forming us to be the kind of people that joyfully receive everything from him. And one more thing. I know I'm already low on time, so I want to offer a breadcrumb trail. In the Christian faith, gifts always come to us on the way to someone else. Gifts, grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, salvation, they are never simply for us. We receive them with open hands for a time, but then we pass them on to someone else. Gifts move through us for the sake of others. To truly receive God's gifts well is to find ways to give our gifts to others. I think that's where I'll end. May you receive God's gifts with open hands and find ways to give them to the people around you.